0: Great honour to be with you, to be able to uh, congratulate Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik on a brilliant lecture. Rabbi Soloveitchik is the most English American I know. <laughs> he knows Downton Abbey, bull pair with Russian toasts, and the most becoming the most Sephardi Ashkenazi I've ever met. <laughs> a man of many parts and great brilliance, and we salute you and congratulate you. It's also a great privilege and. Uh, Mitzvah, to pay tribute to the extraordinary achievements of your president, uh, Richard Joel, and his wonderful wife, Dr. Esther, for the immense and difficult task of steering Yeshiva University in times of turbulence. You've done so with wisdom and grace. We thank you, we bless you, and we wish you many years of fulfillment and happiness so <clears throat> and likewise, I want to congratulate and thank Dr. Stuart Halpin for this wonderful volume, which uh, is, is, as it were, be, being launched here. And just to say personally, not only do I salute everything that Stuart has done by editing many of these volumes by his remarkable work within the Yeshiva University administration, but to say personally, on behalf of Elaine and myself, that our time here in association with Yeshiva University over these past few years has been made so pleasant and so rewarding by Dr. Halpin's constant friendship and help. Thank you, Stuart. Obviously, when we're asked to reflect on the great books of Judaism, uh, one goes almost instinctively to the Morahan of the guide for the perplexed of the Rambam. The Rambam was, uh, after all, the greatest halachist uh, in the Jewish Middle Ages, uh, and the achievements of the Mishnah Torah are still unsurpassed, and wrote the greatest work of Jewish philosophy in the form of the guide for the perplexed, one of those wonderful self-fulfilling texts such that if you weren't perplexed before you read it, you will be by the time you finish. And uh, what I would really like to do today is very, very simple indeed, to show you how his philosophical disposition in the Guide for the Perplexed lies behind a unique chiddush of the Rambam in Hilchus Chometzimatzah, a law about how we tell the story on Seder night. Um, The Rambam gives an explanation of this that no one else does, and I want to share that with you. The Rambam is sometimes called a rationalist as opposed to a mystic, but even more important, the Rambam, especially in the guide, but throughout his work, was what I would call a naturalist as opposed to a supernaturalist. And the naturalists and the supernaturalists form a distinct division among Jewish thinkers. And I can best describe it in terms of a little sugya in the and Shabbos, Nun Gimel. Describes a man who, Rachmanelitzlan, his wife died giving birth. And he was too poor to employ a a, a wet nurse to to give uh, milk to the child. And the Gomorrah says a miracle happened and he himself gave milk. It is actually a, a rare but known medical phenomenon known as male lactation. And the Gomorrah records two views on this. Uh, Omar of Yosef. Rav Yosef said, See what a great man this must be that God made a miracle on his behalf. Amalo Abiah, but Abiah said, "Adirab." to the contrary, Kama Garua Adamza, how lacking is this man? lo That a miracle had to be done in order to save him. If it had been a bit better, all sorts of things would never have happened in the first place, and he wouldn't have needed a miracle to save him. So the supernaturalists in Judaism look at the miracles, but the naturalists say, no, the miracles are always a sign of some human failing such that God has to become a strategic intervener. The supernaturalists see the power of God is so great that he can suspend the laws of nature. But the naturalists, the greatness of God is that he created the laws of nature. The very essence of of God is that he created a natural universe governed by laws. And that means that the fabric of the universe is not random, it's not unpredictable, it is not chaotic. That the more we understand, the more we see how precisely, finely tuned the entire natural universe is for the emergence of life and all the other miracles of this universe. So the naturalists see God's greatness in science. And that, of course, is what the Rambam says in Hirchus Yusodi Atera, Perak Beis, Base, that if you really want to come to the love and fear of God, study physics and metaphysics, and you will understand what a great design the universe is and how blessed and improbable our existence actually is. And that is the Rambam. And that is a strand of thought in Judaism of which he is the supreme exponent. It's a strand that runs through all the generations. But he is the supreme naturalist. And of course, what the Rambam does is in the Murehan of he gives explanations of many of the mitzvahs um, um, that we would regard as naturalistic explanations. For instance, you know all the Midrashim of Hazal as to the Arba Minim. What do the different kinds represent? Different kinds of personality, different bits of the body. The Rambam says quite simply, the Arba Minim were the most easily accessible and cheapest forms of things that grow through the rain on the land. It's that simple. There's a question in Hilchus uh, Ratzayach. Why was a... Uh, uh, somebody who killed Bashogek and was exiled to the Are why does he go free at the death of the high priest? And the Gemara Mankas discusses all sorts of... Yeah, he should have doven harder. The Rambam says simply, when a, a respected religious leader, who is the supreme religious leader of all Israel, everyone is in a state of mourning and in a state of grief. And when you are in a state of collective grief, you forget your private resentments and desires for revenge. It's a very profound explanation. Maise Shani. The Rambab says, why Maise Shani? Because if you um, bring all this food or all this money for food that you have to eat in Yerushalayim, you will discover that you have so much you can't eat it all. I'm not sure if Rambam actually was familiar with uh, contemporary Jewish eating, or he probably wouldn't have said this. But maybe your cholesterol levels are high. So what do you do if you have so much food that you can't eat it all? You invite others to join with you. And hence, my sesheni is about building civil society, building bonds of friendship that strengthen chevruta within communities, and between communities. Now these are profoundly naturalistic explanations of mitzvot, but they are profoundly relevant and true. The Rambam is telling us there's nothing mysterious or miraculous about the way Torah, if fully understood and properly implemented, creates a free, just, and compassionate society. And all we have to do is study the natural, not the supernatural, dimension here. And for instance, I don't know if you're into all of this, have you noticed how many of the psychologists and psychiatrists and psychotherapists um, 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 have been Jewish? I mean, all the psychoanalysts except for Jung were Jewish. But then I always said, if you're not Jewish, who needs a psychoanalyst? But you know, we, those three great psychotherapists of the 20th century Viktor Frankl, invent, you know, who spoke about man's search for meaning, Aaron Beck, the co creator of something called cognitive behavioral therapy, um, Martin Seligman, creator of positive psychology, Daniel Kahneman and Lahavdil Ben Chaim Le his late uh, Amos Tversky, who created behavioral economics, applying psychology to economics. You name it, all of these people, Walter Mitchell, who created the marshmallow test, Abraham Maslow, who created the hierarchy of of motivation, very consciously Jewish, because he called the baseline Adam needs, and the top the Abraham needs, and so on and so forth. All of these people were, uh, were, uh, were deeply Jewish. And what the Rambam tells us in uh, the Shmoni Prakim, is that the mitzvot are all about what nowadays is called emotional intelligence. They're all about making us more sensitive, more generous, repeated action. And nowadays we know this because of the neuroscience and the plasticity of the brain that you can reconfigure the brain by repeated action this is the latest discovery of neuroscience, although it was well known to the Rishonim. They put it in simple words, Hergel naset practice becomes second nature, which we would now call reconfiguring the brain. Since Rabbi Soloveitchik is here, I will mention one of the more memorable moments of the last few years in America, because as you know, Yale University was, I think, one of the last to operate a Jewish quota. And you know the uh, motto of Yale University is written in Hebrew, it's Urim Vatumim. So Alan Dershowitz always used to ask, if you can read it, you can't go there. (laughs) I had the privilege a year or two ago of doing a public conversation with the president of Yale University. The president of Yale University invented discoverer, not popularizer, but discoverer of emotional intelligence is Professor Peter Salovey who is mishpacha of yours because Salovey is an anglicization of Saloveitchik. He is part of your family and he is president of Yale and we were sitting there in front of all the great and good of Yale University and he he began by saying I wonder what the founders of Yale would think looking at me the sign of a rabbinic dynasty having a conversation with the chief rabbi. So one way or another Uh, Jews have been part of this psychology. But the Rambam was a pioneer in cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what the Shmone Parakim is all about. So the Rambam's explanations of the mitzvot are terrific and very, very powerful. However, what does that make of telling the story on Seder night? The essence of telling the story of Satanite is to talk about all the miracles, all the wonders. We list them all. We go through a long list and say, Elo, this and not that, Dayenu. And uh, how many plagues were there? You think there were only ten. Let's multiply them by five and another four, etc. All these miracles and miracles and miracles. And the Rambam says... In Hilchus Sodia Torah, chapter eight, Moshe Rabbeinu, people did not believe in Moses because of the miracles he did. He said, "Because if anyone performs miracles, you will always have skepticism. Was that magic? Was it deceiving the eye? What was it? You cannot base a faith on miracles. So why did Moshe Rabbeinu bring manna from heaven?" Answer: Because the people were hungry, and there was no. What did you call it? Pomegranate supermarket <laughs> in the wilderness. Uh, why, why did he bring water from Iraq? Because they were thirsty. Why did he divide the Red Sea? Because they wanted to get to the other side. That is why they did miracles. Uh, but no, he, he says quite explicitly, don't base your faith on miracles. And therefore, we have to uh, understand how on earth he understood Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. Although, and I'm not going to go into this at this point, if you actually look carefully at the text of the ten plagues, in Sefer Shemot, you will see that almost throughout, God tells Moses that he's going to bring plagues on Egypt, not to show the Israelites how great he is, but to show the Egyptians how great he is. That they should know that there's a God in heaven. Not the Israelites. If you're Egyptian, you need to see miracles to believe. But if you're a Jew, no. And that is a fundamental rereading of the Exodus story that he is uh, telling us about. And this is uh, really very, very important. So the Rambam is now going to focus on a an argument in the Gemara that Rabbi Soloveitchik has already mentioned. And I just want to begin, if I may, by saying how important this Mishnah and this Machloket is. I used to make a film, half an hour film for BBC television every year. It was a message to the nation, and I did it before. It was always shown before Rosh Hashanah. And in 1995... The BBC asked me to make that television program from Auschwitz. I really did not want to do it. I did not think this is a good way of telling the world what the Jewish people is. And I wanted us to move on. But the BBC said, please, you know, it's 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. We need to make a program about it. Do it. And I said, I will do it on one condition and one condition only. That I can tell the story the Jewish way. And they said, what is it to tell a story the Jewish way? And I said, the answer is given in the Mishnah in Psachim. Matchil b'genut u'mesayim b'shevach. You begin with the bad news and you end with the good news. A Jewish story has to be a story of hope. And that is why in that program on Auschwitz, I did 25 minutes from Auschwitz, and the last five minutes, on Yerushalayim HaBnuya, Jerusalem reunited and rebuilt, and a school of five-year-old children learning Torah, and the smiles on their faces showing that the world's oldest faith is still becoming young again. And that is a very, very important dimension of Judaism, so much that in one of my books, I define Judaism as the voice of hope in the conversation of humankind. And that is how we tell the story. If you want to ask what is profoundly and uniquely Jewish about the Pesach story, it is that somehow we can rescue faith and freedom and hope from Lechem, only the bread of affliction, and mora the bitter herbs of slavery. Jews can take those bitternesses and somehow out of them celebrate four cups of wine on the journey to freedom. Paul Johnson said Jews have a gift for turning misfortune to good use better than any other people in the world. And that is a very, very profound idea. We don't see the world through rose-colored glasses. We know there's bad news. We begin with the bad news. But that's the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. Now, on this, as Rabbi Soloveitchi mentioned, there's a machlokist, Robin Shmuel. Shmuel says... First, we were slaves, then God set us free. That's according to Shmuel. Rav says, no. But begin with the bad news, and with the good news is. So, originally, our ancestors were. I, and now God has brought us close to his service. What is the machlokit between them? According to some, Shmuel is looking at physical liberation. Rav is looking at spiritual liberation. For some, it's a matter of wide angle or telephoto lens. Shmuel is focusing on the immediate events of Moses and the Israelites, whereas Rav is looking at the broad sweep. ...of Jewish history. Yet others say... ...Rav L'shitoso and Shmuel Lushitoso, ...because Shmuel says... ...Ein dein olam hazele... HaMashiach... ...the only difference between now... ...and the Messianic age is... ...today we lack political sovereignty... ...but as soon as... ...and that's in... ...Mod HaMashiach we will acquire sovereignty... ...we won't be anyone else's slaves. So for him... Political liberation is liberation. And for him, we are living in the Messianic age. Uh, And Rav holds, no, we we can't imagine the Messianic age until we get there. And so Rav has a much more elevated view of what liberation is. Those are ways of interpreting the Machloket. But I want to show you how the Rambam now takes his naturalism and gives a solution that no one else in the whole literature gives. Okay? And he does so by showing that Rav and Shmuel aren't arguing at all. And here it is. The Rambam does something very subtle. I don't want to go into the methodology here, but it's very subtle. The Rambam, you know, before he started on the Mishneh Torah he did a book called Sefer HaMitzvot, in which he counts up the 613 commands and gives us principles for how to count a command. this one command, two commands, no command. And the Rambam has a shithah throughout the Mishnah Torah that sometimes there can be one command. It counts as one command and maybe is said in one set of words, which nonetheless has two commands completely different forms of implementation. Yeah? So let me give you an example. <speaking in Hebrew> you shall surely reprimand your neighbor. That command, and Ramban agrees here, if you look at Ramban there uh, on its Faikra 19, uh, 17, I think, 17. The uh, Ramban brings both Perushim. According to one reading, that command says, if somebody upsets you, don't go away and hate him. Talk it through. Right? So what would we call that now? Totally un-Jewish thing to do. Right? That's what we call it. Sign of assimilation. Uh, Conflict resolution, I think we would call it. Conflict. Judaism is not great on conflict resolution. We are gold medalists in conflict creation and conflict intensification. But here is the halacha of conflict resolution, that if somebody is upset you, don't be silent and hate. You know, remember what it says about Joseph and his brothers? They couldn't speak to him, they hated him so much, and the result is they hated him even more. So that's an I-Thou relationship. But Hocher to has a completely different interpretation at all, which is if you see some Jew who don't, you don't know at all, but you see somebody committing a sin, go up to them and try and stop them. Yeah? And that's got nothing to do with conflict resolution. That's got to do with Kol Yisrael, Arabian we They were all responsible for one another. And therefore, I'm not only responsible for me fulfilling the commands. I'm also responsible, to some extent, for you fulfilling the command. If I can influence you, then I should. So, these are two different commands. But they're contained in the same words. And they only count as one. So what the Rambam does, in chapter 8 of, of, sorry, chapter 7, I think it is, of Hilchas Chometzumatza, he tells us the, the command to tell the story on Seder night is not one command, it's two commands, though it only counts as one, okay? And here it is. Chapter Seven, Halacha One says, "Mitzvah It's a mitzvah to tell the story of the going out of Egypt on the nineteenth of the. Even if you have no children, and even great sages have a mitzvah to tell. And the more you do it, the more the better. And you know we say that in the Haggadah. So mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to tell the story. And that is a mitzvah on, 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 of, of, under the heading of Zachor. It's a mitzvah of remembrance. The way we tell the story on Purim. The way we tell the story on Shavuot. So we tell a story. Because that is part of the mitzvah of recalling and giving thanks for our people's past. That's halacha one. Halacha two. Mitzvah Lahodia levanim. It's a mitzvah to teach our children the story. Even if they didn't ask, nonetheless it says... You know, I feel Misha at Pasachlo. So we have a second mitzvah of telling this story on Seder night. It's got nothing to do with historical remembrance. It's part of the mitzvah of Chinuch. It's part of the mitzvah of education. So we, these are two separate mitzvahs, even though they only count as one. Do you do you follow that? Now listen to what he says in Halakha 4. You've got to begin with the bad news and end with the good news. How? You begin and you tell. You begin and you tell. You begin by being masape, relating the fact that originally our ancestors were idolaters, and now God has brought us close. And then he has v'chein. And in addition, matchil u'modiyah. You begin to make known to your children that we were slaves to our pharaoh. Did you see what the Rambam has done? He's taken Rav and he has taken Shmuel. He's put them there together in the same paragraph. And he doesn't see them arguing at all. They're not disagreeing. They're talking about two different forms of the mitzvah. Shmuel is telling us how to teach our children. And Rav is telling us how to teach ourselves. There's a child-centered way of telling the story. And there's an adult way of telling the story. And the child-centered way of telling the story is with all the miracles and the wonders and those. Do you have those? Do your grandkids or grandchildren have all those jumping plastic frogs and all that stuff? I'm a interesting these days. So uh, it's terrific stuff. It's full of signs and wonders, and that is the children's way of telling this story. But the grown-up way of telling this story has got nothing to do with those miracles whatsoever. The real story is God actually is the one God of the universe, and by creating us all in His image, He took our people to be role models for the world of what it is to be a free people the political implications of monotheism. And that is the miracle. And the Rambam puts this subtly but very powerfully in Book 3, Chapter 32 of the Guide, which the Rambam says, if God can do all these miracles, how how come he can't do the simplest and most obvious miracle of the lot, which is change us? And the Rambam says, God can do it easily. Believe you me, he can change us like that. But he's resolved never to do so. Why? Because if he changed us, we'd lose our freedom. We'd become programmable robots. I mean, artificial intelligence is getting very, very impressive. Have you noticed this? Apparently, it wasn't reported in the American press. This is a true story. Three weeks ago, in the British press, in the Times, no less, it reported that there is a new app for smartwatches which tells you when you're being boring. (laughs) Luckily, you can't use it on stubbers. There you are, Rabinet Rabinet saved. Okay. Okay. The Rambam says, Hashem is so committed to our freedom, He could change us, but He won't. Now, understand what the Rambam is saying. The easy miracle is dividing the Red Sea. The difficult miracle is, can we change ourselves? That is the real miracle. Can we stop being slaves and become people who accept the responsibilities of freedom? That is the miracle. And that's why Hashem had us experience firsthand what slavery feels like. And never let us forget because every year we have to taste it again. That's the miracle. Or as I put it elsewhere, it's not what God does for us that changes us. What changes us is what we do for God. Not what God does for us, but what we do for God. And that is how the Rambam is telling us. Guys, when it comes to Satanite, talk about the miracles, be thrilled by the miracles, but never forget, that's for your kids. The adult story is, God is calling us to be role models to the world of what it is to be free. And we have no doubt, and Rabbi Soloveitchik was really good on this, as to what the unique Jewish contributions to human freedom have been. Number one is the most single most important Sentence in the entire history of political thought. And it occurs in Barathees chapter 1. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Telling us that every human being, regardless of color, class, culture or creed, is in God's image. The ancient world believed that human beings were in God's image. Who was in God's image? Ramses II. The word Ramses means child of the sun god. The ruler is in God's image. The rest of you forget it. Along comes Beratius I and says the most politically incendiary sentence in history. No, every human being has rights, has dignity, should it be entitled to freedom. That's what John F. Kennedy meant. In the first paragraph of his inaugural address, when he said on the January 20th, 1961, the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forefathers fought are still today at issue around the world, the belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. No one else in no other country could have said that, only in America, because America has built totally and primarily on Jewish covenant theory. And if you haven't read it yet, a guy called Philip Gorski has just brought out a book called American Covenant, in which he analysed. David Brooks did an op-ed on it last Wednesday in the New York Times, on how the Jewish story of the Exodus is the American story. And there's a new book that reminds us of this right now. Number two, that absolutely fundamental fact that um, that, uh, freedom has to be law-governed liberty. Because without law, my freedom is bought at the cost of yours. That is what we forget. Only if there is law, can rich and poor, powerful and powerless have the same rights. And that is what Isaiah Berlin Forgot and should never have forgotten. Liberty has to be law governed, liberty. The freedom to do what you like is not a recipe for freedom. it's a recipe for chaos. And finally, um, the, I, finally, let's be blunt. The modern world, our freedoms today, were created by four people, two of whom were Christian, one of whom was an atheist. One of whom was a Jewish atheist in the 17th century. And all four of them based their theories on Tanakh, John Milton, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Benedict Spinoza. Read them. Thomas Hobbes, a total atheist, quotes Tanakh 649 times in the Leviathan he is not basing his theories on Plato, on Aristotle. He's basing them on Snach, and the proof of this is the modern world was found, based on four revolutions: the English Revolution, 1640s; the American Revolution, 1776 the French Revolution 1789, the Russian Revolution whose centenary we're observing this year, 1917. Two of them based on Tanakh, England and America. Two of them based on secular philosophy, French on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Russia on Karl Marx. Two of them, the English and French, led to societies with civil rights and liberties. And the, the other two, French and Russian Revolution, French Revolution led to the Reign of Terror the Russian Revolution led to Stalin, the Gulag, and the KGB. If that is not proof that if you want freedom, you have to base it on Tanakh, I don't know what more proof we can give you. So, in a world in which, I hope you know today, the entire structures of Western liberal democratic freedom are shaking. They are shaking. The best analysis of this was given, oddly enough, by somebody who I met just this week, and I'd never thought of him as a political thinker. There's a guy called Ray Dalio who runs something called Bridgewater Capital. You haven't come across this, who's just got his team to analyze the rise of populism in America and throughout the West. People voting for strong leaders rather than for democratic freedoms. And people are doing this everywhere. Hence the rise of the far right in Europe. Hence the Brexit vote. I won't say anything about American politics because I'm still a guest here. And Brits are supposed to be polite. Uh, But one way or another, Western politics needs help. And it needs help from our living example of what it is. Judaism, for 2,000 years, we didn't have a government to do it for us. And yet we did it ourselves. We maintained free societies With educational systems, health systems, welfare systems. And we did this voluntarily. Why? Because the law was engraved on our hearts. No other people has ever done this. And that is why the state of Israel today, and I'm well aware of the Israel apartheid weeks happening in universities throughout the world, and the offensive campaign called BDS. Israel remains a state. Stunning example of the triumph of democratic freedoms in a world where everyone is trying to kill those freedoms. You saw what happened in London on Wednesday afternoon. Somebody running down people and the entrance to the the West's oldest parliament. Freedom still has its enemies. We are not only freedom's friends, we are its oldest and most practiced practitioners. So therefore, that is what the Rambam is saying. Yes, tell the story of the miracles and how God did it. And tell that to your children and grandchildren. But remember there's another story, which is that God needs us to give Him a helping hand. And let me sum it up in one question I want you to ask yourselves, when it comes to the Koshel Eliyahu, we think we are waiting for the Mashiach. But actually, the Mashiach is waiting for us. Let us act together to continue to be inspiring models of freedom. And may I wish you all a chag Kashev v'samer. Amen.